Uh, I was uh, at Alberto's today eating lunch real fast. I was sitting there reading a commentary on the book of Matthew, and this guy walks over and he goes, what are you reading? I was reading, I'm reading a commentary on the book of Matthew. He goes, oh yeah, we did Matthew in my church this morning today. Like, really? He told me, like, he started telling me the passage he did. And he goes, are you reading a commentary? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I don't really believe in commentaries, you know. He said, they're just somebody's opinion anyway. And I said, well, have you thought about the fact that the somebody who wrote this commentary spent probably four years studying this book and writing this commentary? So it might be their opinion, but it's probably a very learned opinion. He goes, ah, it's just an opinion. And uh, I said, well, uh, don't you think that your pastor's sermon this morning at the church was just an opinion? And it was like his whole head just spun around like... <laughs> like, he just, like it was like the first time he thought, like, isn't a sermon just an audio commentary on a book or a passage anyway? But, but the beauty of it, and the reason I bring up this story is not just because I think it was kind of funny, but it's like we have actually come to the point by this point where we've really almost assembled an audio commentary. And yes, there's a lot of opinions on it, and there's a lot of uh, places where we've pushed back and wrestled that we might not have even come up with clear answers on everything, but that's the point of wrestling with the scriptures. And I bet you if we did this whole series all over again from scratch, we would come up with even more stuff. Because I really like the wisdom that's found in the book of Matthew. It almost is inexhaustible in my mind, all the things that we can come up with. So let's dive in um, and start. We've been through a number of things in Matthew so far. Last week, we covered seven or eight things that we covered from the end of 20 all the way through 21. So let's just start in chapter 22 and go through the first one, the parable of the wedding banquet. So Jesus has finished, if you just see, he was finishing talking about the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants. Remember, the parable of the tenants is the one where the landlord sends, the master sends people to pick up stuff from the tenants and they beat the first servants, then they finally beat the other ones and they torture them and he sends the son and they kill the son. And I said last week there was no disguising the fact that Jesus was talking directly to them. Like, you're the ones who are doing this. The previous messengers that had been sent by the master probably represented the prophets. And then he sends the son and he's identifying himself directly as the son. I said very thinly veiled parable. Some of the earlier parables might have been more obscure, but now Jesus, just days away from the end of his ministry, he's not pulling any punches. And the parable of the wedding banquet that now we're about to go into follows right on the theme of that. It's a continuation of that same idea of what happens when people reject what's going on. So he's still talking again, likely with the Pharisees listening in as he tells this parable. Let's start at the beginning of chapter 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those he had, who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Do you remember the parallel to that kind of same parable of the vineyard and the tenants? It sounds similar in a way. Here we have a banquet that's being thrown by the king. Now why would the king be sending out messengers to say, come, everything's ready? Wouldn't they know what day it was? Not necessarily. The ancient practice was more to say, I'm going to have this banquet. 
and I will tell you when everything is ready, and then the messengers come out to announce, now, come now. In our Western mindset, we might think, but what if I'm busy at that moment? I don't even know when it is. These banquets were going to last for a while. And you were already anticipating that it was coming, so you should make preparations to go. Who does the king represent in this story? Again, not very, not very hard to pick out. It represents God. And this banquet table is a messianic reference. I mean, they kind of knew the imagery. It was used by other rabbinic type of literature of saying, like, here's the banqueting table. We're inviting to the table. So the invitation to the table was something that they expected kind of in the messianic literature. God inviting people to the banqueting table, and they're not willing. They refuse. The king shows a little bit of patience here. He actually tries to make a case for why they should come. But the food is ready, and the food is really good, by the way. This is going to be a good banquet. He sends out more servants. Rather than just going straight to the, you refuse me, it's a repugnant act. It's one where they're, they're kind of repudiating the king. It's an act that in this parable brings about destruction. But he doesn't go there right away. He sends more servants. And he tries to make the case. But it's going to be a good banquet. You're going to like it. Come. And yet they mistreat the servants. Very similar to the parable Jesus just finished talking about. And that's when he brings this treacherous end to those who refuse. He's clearly setting up this parable to mean you Israel, you people have been invited to the messianic banquet table. And you're being invited now and you're refusing to come. Now you might have heard there's another banquet parable in Luke and it has a different point. And it's not the same parable actually. So I just want to point that out that they're different. It just shows that Jesus used this imagery over and over for different purposes. But in this case, the meaning is pretty clear. It's time. Come. You're invited. And they refuse. The king goes to war against them and destroys them. And you might think that's pretty harsh for just not going to somebody's banquet. Uh, that's probably a little bit too much for just a wedding banquet. But again, we don't understand the custom. And this is a mighty king who's expecting his subjects to act in accordance. And I think that's part of our mentality, even when we're wrestling with this parable about God, that we're not thinking of God all the time as king. And that's a point that he makes here. This is not just a master. It's the king here. And we don't, we don't really keep that in mind. We can probably anticipate what happens next. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding banquet was filled with guests. So the invitation now goes to everyone else. The Jewish leaders listening to this must totally understand what he's saying. You've rejected it. It's too late for you now. You've already been, you're going to be destroyed by God in this way, this parable at least, all right? He's not, maybe he's not being that direct yet. <laughs> There's a future tense in this parable. But now the other people come in. Look at the words here. The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. A lot of people, when they look at this parable, kind of, they wrestle like, well, why did he invite people who didn't deserve to come in the first place? What does it mean that they don't deserve to come? Is that something like no one deserves God? Is that some sort of statement like that? Actually, again, you have to understand the Eastern custom and the way that that word is spoken. When you say to somebody like, you don't deserve this, it means you've done something bad and you no longer deserve it. So their act of rejecting the king's invitation now makes them unworthy of the invitation. 
If they had actually accepted it, that's enough to say, I gave you the invitation and you acted correctly. You did what you're supposed to do. You responded to the invitation. But if you reject the invitation, you're no longer worthy to be invited because your act has shamed you. You don't deserve it anymore. And that's kind of the way that I think this phrase is best spoken. I actually looked at a number of commentators who were wrestling with what does this mean did not deserve to come. And I think, in my humble opinion, most of them got it wrong because they're reading it in English. And I don't think that's the way that this word would be spoken in a Semitic way to say to somebody, you don't deserve it. It has a specific meaning. All right, so far this is all set up. Pharisees bad. Israel rejecting the Messiah when he comes. We're going to go out in the streets and get everybody else. Maybe they represent the Gentiles. Maybe it's the birth of the church from anyone who accepts the invitation. What does this mean? Here's the rest of this parable. So far, it's kind of like the parable we expect. Bad people, they get the wrath. Good people, they get invited to the banquet. For whether they're good or bad, they're just the people now. Bring them in. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Well, that kind of twists the parable a little bit, doesn't it? So we understand the thinly veiled reference to those people who reject the invitation of the Messiah when he's finally setting up this thing or when the king is finally setting up his wedding banquet. We understand that. And we understand bringing everybody else in. That kind of seems like, yes, that's right. Why does this poor soul get yanked out of the banquet? Yes. The only thing I can think of is that it means that um, even after the invitation, there's something more required of you. It's not just a gift that's given and that's all you have to do once you've accepted the invitation. There's something you have to do, even as minimal as putting on wedding clothes. There's some sort of reciprocation that has to be there in like accepting the gift that God's given people. I mean, that is exactly what is being said here. Now, people will debate what is that something more that you're supposed to do. But maybe that's reading too much into the parable then starts saying like, well, what does the clothing signify or what are you supposed to do? I think at least we can say that even if you're one of those people that got brought into the banquet, there's still at least some level in this case, in the parable, in the allegorical sense, some level of decorum that you have to follow. There was at least some minimal thing. Now, to show up to the wedding banquet without the banquet clothes is another insult, just as insulting as the people who just didn't go at all. So there's a disobedience and a, like a repudiation of the king in not going, or in looking like you're going, but not really being prepared to do what you're supposed to be doing there. So that's kind of a word for, maybe you could divide it up this way. There's some people who just reject the message, reject the king, reject the invitation. And then there's some of us who appear to accept it, but we haven't really accepted it to the point of doing what is required to accept it. In this case, it's nothing more than putting on the wedding clothes. And you might think, what if the guy's poor? You didn't have wedding clothes, right? All the objections that have come up over the years as we rewrite this in our minds from a Western perspective. But again, in the ancient Near East, it was customary for the king to provide the wedding clothes. It was customary to kind of set up what was expected or that most people would have something that would be akin to what they wore traditionally for a wedding. It's probably unfair to read into this that 
this poor guy didn't have the wedding clothes. In other words, he could have given that answer, but the person was speechless. He basically is just kind of showing up and disrespecting even the invitation. Notice at the very end, many are invited, but few are chosen. That's not part of the parable. That's Jesus. He always seems to end his parables with an editorial comment. So here's the point. I just told you a parable. Let me give you a point for you to connect it. Many are invited, but few are chosen. And that tends to kind of be the thing that settles on us. Like, what does it mean that some are chosen? Probably beyond the scope of what we're talking about. But if you ever want to spend time through the Gospels and the letters of Paul, just look for the words called, chosen, predestined, and just read through them and see how many verses come out when you look with that lens at this idea of chosen and calling that seems to come out over and over. But here, his commentary is related. Let's keep it directly to this parable in this context. A lot are invited. Not everyone is chosen. So even when you show up, maybe you need to also show up with the right attitude or the right perspective. Clearly, the Pharisees don't like this. This is another direct attack on them and, in a more general sense, on the people of Israel. So the Pharisees begin a series of tests. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So who's going? Let's focus. The disciples of the Pharisees are going now. And the Herodians. Who are they? They're clearly people who are related in some way to Herod. And King Herod at this point had a very close connection to Rome because they were the source of his power. He had probably traded away quite a bit to get to be the king. So he was beholden to Rome and those people beholden to him wanted to maintain this relationship with Rome. What's the best way to maintain a relationship with Rome? Don't cause any kind of insurrection or unrest. The Romans hated that. If you could just govern your people and keep them straight, you can be king. And of course, make sure that we get all the taxes that we need to get to keep running this Roman Empire. You do those things and we don't really care about most other things that you're doing. So now the Pharisees, who probably don't like this Roman oppression, that would be a fair statement, are teaming up with the Herodians, who could be seen as those Jews who had pledge their allegiance to somebody who would pledge their allegiance to Rome just for political gain. They're walking over to test him together. It's a trap. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? More literally, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Look how they set him up with like kind of this puffery. This great like puffery that comes with it like, okay, we know that you don't care what people say. You're just going to say whatever you want to say. You're just going to say the truth. You're a person of integrity. In other words, go ahead and blurt it out because you're going to offend one or the other of this group that's coming to you. And word's going to get back to one of the two groups that you actually sided with one or the other. And that's the trap. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? If he says, sure it is, then he's actually alienated the Pharisees and probably most of the Jewish audiences that are listening to him. If he says it's not lawful to pay to Caesar, that's a sign of insurrection. That's what gives people the chance to put him on trial for sure. 
And of course, the Herodians now can do it on their own because they could probably go to Herod and say, look, there's a guy walking around who's saying that we don't even have to pay taxes. That's the nature of the trap. Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Well, we know the portrait. You could probably picture it. It had a portrait of, what do you think's on the coin? Caesar. Anyone know what the inscription on the coin was? The inscription was, God and High Priest. So Caesar put himself in the place of God and High Priest. This becomes very significant later in the book of Hebrews, for example, where there's a whole defense explaining that Jesus is God and High Priest. And there's a whole, that takes on a new significance because at the time, that was the claim of Rome, that the Caesar was God and High Priest. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. We've heard this passage before. In fact, all through chapter 22 tonight, you're going to hear passages you've heard many times. What's the import for us? What does it matter? This statement about give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's has been cited to support a whole number of things. I think that we're going to investigate it a little deeper. And this is probably a good time to let you know that our next series after we finish the book of Matthew is probably going to be centered on what is the church's role in society? What is it supposed to be doing? How does it wrestle with issues like policy? Or what are we supposed to be doing with things that are going on in current events and news around us? Where is the church's role in that? We're going to hear from you a lot more, I hope, on this, because I'm sure all of you have opinions on it. But this phrase is often used to try to delineate a whole school of thought on what we're supposed to be doing. Like, maybe you could argue for a whole separation of church and state based on this. And people have. Maybe you could argue for a whole separation of public versus private distinctions where there's public life and there's private faith issues, and people have. In this case, though, it seems that what was going on was he was trying to respond wisely to the trap that was set, showing them, I think, a very good principle that, yes, even on this earth there are things that we should do, like even pay taxes. We know elsewhere in Scripture that we're to respect governing authorities. There's nothing in here that gives us the right to bring insurrection into the public life. But at the same time, you can see that he's not giving into a trap that says that we need to live under the authority of just rulers. He's making a much larger point about God's place over and above that. Some people could interpret and say, well, isn't everything God's? So we should give everything back to God. Yes, but even God has placed authority over us in certain places, as the scripture reminds. So that would not be inconsistent. Morgan? I think that's why there's a veiled attack there, like, because of the fact that, that everything does belong to God. There's, a, there's also, so God does place rulers and authorities and things like that, but ultimately everything is subject under God's sovereignty. And so I think in that, he's, it's kind of a quiet, or it's not quiet, but I mean, it's a veiled attack at they're trying to pull, put him in this trap, and he's actually saying, yeah, there's quite a bit above Caesar knowing that there's, you know, that type of subscription saying, you know, God and high priest and things like there is a, there's kind of a zap at that, you know. 
Yeah, the main point of the passage, of course, is the ending part, that they're amazed. People are trying to find ways to trap Jesus, and I think Matthew's main point is the wisdom of Jesus, his ability to be able to respond in a way that is right and true as all this puffery they come up with. So he lives up to even the flattery that they're throwing at him, and yet he avoids the trap. Their flattery was clearly a way of saying, go ahead, just say whatever you want, hoping that he had to answer one way or another. His answer confounds both sides, so that neither side has anything against him. And that is the point that Matthew is making. You'll see it in this next part, same thing. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So remember that the other large faction within Judaism at this time, I mean, there's more, but the two that are the most prominently known were the Pharisees and now the Sadducees. And here Matthew makes it a point to tell us about the Sadducees in case we don't really understand the context. They're saying the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. So they don't believe in a resurrection, so they're going to come ask him a resurrection story. Try to get him some question that could somehow trip him up. So here's their question. It's actually kind of a ridiculous question. Because they don't even believe in what they're about to ask him. They're just kind of almost, I think, mocking the whole notion of resurrection. And here's how they do it. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? So people who don't care about resurrection are saying, what happens if a woman marries through seven brothers who all keep dying. And then we wake up in heaven at this resurrection that you keep telling us about. Whose wife will she be? Now, if you're wondering why they're even asking this question about the widow, it was commanded under the Mosaic law. That's why it says Moses told us that if a woman became a widow and she had no children, in other words, no one to care for her as she got older, it was a brother's duty to marry her so that she could have children. In this case, this family, <laughs> very infertile, I think, because they just keep dying off and no children are being produced. So the whole story is a little ridiculous. The example's ridiculous, but the point that they're trying to make is to mock the idea of resurrection and then pose this question. So let's say this really did happen. Whose wife will she be in heaven? Jesus' response. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. First of all, the bad news. The bad news appears to be that there's no marriage in heaven. Okay? So you got to get it in while the getting's good, right? So this is it. This is all you got, apparently, is what Jesus is saying. His point is sobering. Our concepts of life and relationship will be radically altered in the resurrection. That's what he means when he says, you do not know the scriptures 
or the power of God. Most people think that when he's talking about the power of God in this way, that not only will there be resurrection and the scriptures that relate to it, but even the very nature of relationships as we understand them will be transformed in such a way that what we can't imagine. Like, how is it that I could live life without that closeness of a relationship? How is it that I could live life without the intimacy that comes from sexual intercourse? Is all being wrapped up and answered in a question where he goes, that's not going to be the way it is anymore. And that's difficult in some ways for us to comprehend. Not only because it's a natural part of our desire for that level of intimacy and relationship, but to think that there might be something even greater, something even better that is at work here than even the relationship that comes in oneness and marriage. That's part of it. I want to focus on this real fast. He says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. I want to be clear that this phrase hangs on a word. It hangs on the word like. That word is very important because many people have read this to say that there won't be marriage in heaven because we will be angels. There's also popular belief in the church, and it just, no matter how much you try to stamp it out, it keeps creeping out that when we die, we're going to be angels. And this verse is the one that's most often used. Say, hey, but it says in the Bible that when we are resurrected, we'll be angels. No, it's like the angels. And why are we like angels? Notice, I think the NIV actually does this right. They make it part of the same phrase. They don't make a period and then start a new sentence. They're linking the concept. There will be no marriage like the angels are not married, is the right way to interpret this. Not, there's no marriage, period, and we will be like angels. So I don't know if we're going to sprout wings and all those things that people think of. We're human, scripturally. We remain human. We're resurrected bodily as humans. We're not going to cease to be human. We're not going to turn into angels. He's just making a comparison that like the angels, when you as a human will be resurrected, there will be no marriage. That's the only connection point in this comparison. Okay, let's go back to a second point. So after he corrects them about the marriage point, the next point that he makes is, but let's talk about your view about resurrection in general. What is this thing about here about, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And we sing that in songs. I mean, what does it really mean? In this case, what he's arguing is, God is a God of people who live. The whole nation of Israel is named after Jacob, a living soul. So they repeated constantly in their minds that we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's saying... God is a God of the people who live. He's not a God of people who are dead. These people that you still repeat to this day that he is the God of, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these people will be there at the resurrection. God is going to rule over living people. So that means that you're wrong. Read the scriptures more carefully is what he's saying to them. There is a resurrection. So I know your story was meant to be kind of mocking resurrection and trying to find a way that it would be impossible for me to answer but you're wrong. You're wrong because there isn't any marriage and you're assuming there is. And second, you're just wrong that there's no resurrection. Go back and read your scriptures more carefully. And then we have Matthew annotating again. The crowds heard this and they were astonished at his teaching. Yeah? Um, I think there's something possibly to take away as far as um, their questions. Like, I think you put a good 
I, I don't think I've thought of the idea of they might even be mocking him or kind of asking a question like, ah, you know, like that sort of thing where you don't actually believe in something, but you ask a provoking question or something like that. I think, um, I think that happens a lot to people in the faith. I mean, part of the point of this group is that we would be people who could field people's questions, but I think it's a good, it's something that you have to look out for because there are a lot, of, maybe agnostics or atheists or just people who are in some way opposed to the faith. They might ask you these kind of questions just to provoke a reaction or to provoke something and they seem to be, you know, that framework is really interesting here where Jesus is able to handle that in a way where you don't just say something dumb or you don't say something reactive. Doing something exactly what people are wanting to get out of you is some reaction, you know. So that might be a takeaway. I think that's a very wise point for this reason. I, don't, I wouldn't stop and say that agnostics and people who are trying to test you that way. I actually hear Christians do this more than others. Like there are people who don't like something or are struggling with something. So the way they pose their question is stated in such a way that they're trying to either push for an answer or they're, they're, they're falling into a logical fallacy. And we, in this group in particular, one of our strength is to be able to go, you know something, I'm not sure the question is rightly stated. And I think we should do that with one another. You should do that with me. And I'll say things that you should, I mean, people do <laughs> all the time. They raise their hand and say no, okay? So, Lena and I have talked about this verse a number of times in our own house, like, what's it going to be like to be in heaven and not be married anymore? And her opinion is like, it doesn't matter, I'm still living at your house, wherever it is. Like, you know. <laughs> She's like, I don't know, I mean, I, I just don't think God is going to not do that, but if he does, doesn't mean we can't, like, still live at the same house, you know, like, okay, you're all invited on Wednesday nights at the resurrection, okay? Let's move forward. One more test. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now, this time, they're not even going to send the disciples. They're sending in the Pharisees themselves are going to go, all right, this is ridiculous. We've got to get in there and just get this guy. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know, we've probably heard this passage so many times, I don't think we even realize, like, what's the test? <laughs> what's the trick? Why are they even asking him this question? There was a great deal of debate among the Pharisees themselves. In fact, a whole rabbinic tradition of argument about which is the greatest commandment, which commandment ranks higher than others. How do you rank them? And so they're trying to bring him into this dispute to maybe split the community that's already been debating all this. So he gives a straight answer, and let's look at it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. He's citing from Deuteronomy the most close citation to this, but here's the one from Deuteronomy. Look at it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He replaces strength with mind. And it seems very intentional. Lots of people who are in seminary make a big deal of this. See, you're supposed to think with your mind. I could have talked to the guy I met today about the commentary, you know, like, ah, commentary is just somebody's opinion. Like, you're supposed to think with your mind. Love him with your mind, you know? Like, don't be mindless, right? In the version in Mark, there's a little bit more detail added to this exchange that we don't have in front of us. But if you look in the version of Mark, the questioner, the expert of the law, actually says, 
you've answered correctly. That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and he says strength. He tries to bring him back to the Deuteronomy standard. But Jesus has clearly made a point that we love as well with our mind. It's significant that I think he adds that. And it seems intentional because both Mark and Matthew copy it that way. And Mark differentiates between the questioner's use of strength and Jesus' use of mind. So it's clearly not just like a slip of the pen. It was actually part of it. Okay, so what does it mean to us that we love God with our heart and our soul and our mind? Think about that for a moment because do we? The real question we should ask for a moment. I also want to point out that when he says the second is like it, you could read that as the second is equally important. Now he is ranking them by using the word first and second, but by saying the second is like it, the implication is the second is so close that it's almost the same thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. I had a client and asked me, what is the correct order of loving God, loving others, and loving yourself? And I said, I think that's the right order. Loving God, loving others, and then loving yourself. And he said, well, I was watching a show with Joel Osteen who said that if you don't love yourself, you can't love others. Like, that sounds like pop psychology to me. Jesus actually presumes, and we actually, my client and I talked about it and went to this passage. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus presupposes that you already love yourself. I don't think any of us, insecurity aside and all those kinds of issues, but when it comes to things that we need or we want or hanging on to our stuff or our rights or our time or our money, our, 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 we're really good about those things and Jesus presupposes it. It's already in there. Like love your neighbor as yourself. You already are good about taking care of you loving you, now love others in the same way, at the same level that you do with yourself. So love God and love others as you already love yourself would be a way to read this. Those are the two commandments that everything hangs on. Now in the version of Mark, the expert of the law actually seems to approve of that. So the sense of this trap kind of dissolves. They actually have a a good way and a good dialogue. Here, Matthew kind of edits that out, I think, because he's trying to make the point of this test after test after test. What's the implication for us and you? You know, some of us are good about loving others. And some of us are not. Some of us are good about loving God with everything we have. And some of us are not. I think in this generation, we're wrestling with trying to make a choice between those two. And I don't think there's a choice. This may sound a little strong, but I'll try to, this is my strong opinion. If you try to do Christ's work in this world, without Christ, you will fail. Because Christ's work is not just feeding or clothing or digging wells or saving people with malaria nets. Christ's work is loving God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, as well as all the other things that are part of his ethic. And I think we have to be careful that we don't keep doing Christ's work without him. or thinking that somehow we can muster enough strength to be Christ ourselves, to save the world and become little messiahs. Or to be the other type of person who loves God with mind, soul, strength, heart, but doesn't love others. That seems to be equally strange. 
I mean, Jesus does say that is the first, but the second is just like it. And you show your love for God in all these things if you can love others as yourself. So if you get everything right in your relationship with God, that's got to include loving others. You couldn't do that. You'd be missing the point. You'd be incomplete in your love for God if you did not love others and actively do something about it. So we have to kind of walk that line because I see so many people in this generation, your generation, who want to save the world themselves without Jesus, without God. Don't hear me saying like, if you just feed them, but they don't save their souls, what have you done? I mean, you could, you could think that way, but Christ's mission in the world was not limited to saving people's physical needs. It was all of it together. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I, I want to say back to where you first defined loving your neighbor as yourself. Like, um, I feel like there's, I would, I, since he says as yourself, like, I think they're on an even tier. You know, like where it's love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and then, like, I would say loving yourself and others are equal, but your point is correct because you, for most people, it's not that hard to love themselves. So <laughs> the clear focus needs to be on others and God. But I also think it's worth saying that there are significant amounts of people in the world who do have issues loving themselves for whatever reasons. I mean, a lot of time with parental abuse or different things where they actually do have issues of loving themselves and it does. So yes, I, I am definitely in the camp where I think most people are pretty selfish and they don't <laughs> wrestle with that too much, but there are lots of people that they actually do have issues loving themselves. Okay, Jeremy? I, I think then we should connect this to the, the passage we first started with where um, it says many are invited, but only a few are chosen. I think that this might be an example, right, of what that, I think that litmus test might look like. So, like, the first analogy was you were invited and you came, but you didn't dress appropriately, right? You didn't do the thing you were supposed to do after being invited. So, in some sense, to me, at least, it seems, given that this is in the same chapter as it's organized, you know, you were invited, and then this is what you had to do, right? This is the only commandment, these two are the only commandments I'm giving you, are the two that are the greatest. And when you think about how difficult those are, then I think it makes more sense as to why it would say few are chosen. I mean, not in the sense that few have been picked, but that few will do. Because the issue is not having been pre-chosen or predestined. The issue is just doing and, and doing them both. And I think that that's a pretty high standard. The notion of chosen in the earlier passage we talked about today relates directly to the fact that they responded. So you're right. And so that invitation goes out and we respond. Here he's making an ultimate declaration of like the extent to which you should respond to God. But I've been trying to understand faith. Like if it's just more than believing some sort of thing in your mind, like, okay, you convinced me that Jesus is the son of God. If it's more than that, like, well, then how much more is it? Like how much more is faith like orienting your whole life such that if this wasn't true, like your life would have... It would just be meaningless because you put everything you had on it. But that seems to be when he says all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That's a, that's, there's no, nothing held back. I was talking to somebody this week about, they asked like, what is faith? Like how far do you have to go to faith? And remember that stupid story they used to tell you in junior high 
where there was that guy that used to walk across Niagara Falls, remember him? And he would like tightrope walk, and then he actually rode a bicycle across Niagara Falls, and then he did like a balancing act, and he was juggling. I mean, this guy was like just some crazy daredevil. And every time he would ask people, like, do you think I could ride a bicycle? Do you think I could do it backwards? And the crowds would just go nuts. I mean, they believed he could do anything. And he finally said, like, do you think I could do it with somebody standing on my shoulders? And everybody said, sure. And they go, okay, who wants to volunteer? <laughs> and nobody volunteered. The difference we were told in junior high is the difference between belief is, yeah, you're standing on a safe, dry place behind a guardrail, like you believe anything. Faith is when you go, yes, I believe it to the point that I'm willing to put my life in your hands and go for it. And that, I think, comes back to this concept of how much all we love him with, that you're throwing it all in. No reservations. And that's the conversation I was having about faith this week, is that a lot of us are thinking like, I'll kind of let it out as you, you know, show me a little bit more. And there's a point where we need to do that. Like we wrestle, maybe we think about who God is, maybe we ask questions, maybe we struggle with it. But at some point, you're never going to conclude. It's never going to get you there all of just your thoughts and your ideas in your, in your mind. At some point you have to go, I'm all in. This is either true or it's not. I'm all in. And I, I, I believe in you and I believe you to the point where my whole life is now based on this. Last part. While the Pharisees were gathered... Jesus asked them a question. So, since you guys keep coming back to test me, let me ask you a question now. What do you think about the Christ? Jesus asks. Whose son is he? This is an easy answer. Everybody knows that the Messiah, the expected Christ, the anointed one, he will be the son of David. Scripture says, the son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Yeah. I just had a question. Did the um, traditional Pharisees not believe that the Messiah would be God also? The Pharisees were expecting like a prototype of David. They expected that, you know, we've heard a lot that they've expected him to be some sort of liberator of Rome, right? But really he was going to be like a second king that was going to come in the tradition of David. I wouldn't say that anyone in the Pharisees expected that he would be God. I don't think that they even understood that he would be divine in any way. They were expecting God to raise up this messianic leader. Now, there may have been other beliefs at the time, but probably not among the majority of the Pharisees. So that's why this question is difficult for them, because he's saying, whose son? Everybody's like, well, he's going to come in the line of David, so he must be a son of David. Right. Now, he's citing Psalm 110, which was understood to be a messianic foreshadowing of the prototype and it actually is supposed to reference kind of this idea. So they don't quibble with his citation. They don't say, for example, well, we don't know what that psalm's all about. Which is actually the current answer. Because as people think about this, Jesus is basically saying David knew that the son of David, the Messiah, was going to be greater than David. In fact, look at what David says. The Lord said to my Lord, which right there is kind of confusing. So he's saying God said to my Lord, my master, my coming Messiah, sit at my right hand. Those are powerful words to say that anyone gets to sit at the right hand of God to share his power and glory by sitting next to him. So he's saying, 
If he's just a normal man, if he's just a son of David, how is it that David knew that he was going to be glorified in this way of sitting at the right hand of God? Remember, Jesus is going to get crucified because at his trial, he says that you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven and sitting at the right hand of God. That's enough to be blasphemy. But notice that David said it many years before in a psalm. Just because we went through a series on the scriptures, I couldn't help but notice this little phrase. Where Jesus says, how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, that's a statement of Jesus endorsing an idea of the Spirit speaking through David, inspiration. How is it that David, speaking inspired in this psalm that he's writing, calls him Lord? They have no answer. This is the actual psalm itself, verses 1 and 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order Melchizedek, I think is the way we say it in English. And the way it's said in Hebrew is Melchizedek. If you look at the word, milk is the word in Hebrew for king. And Sadak should sound familiar because we covered a whole series on justice. Sadakah is a word for righteousness. So this means king of righteousness. And if you read the book of Hebrews, there's a long defense of how Jesus is the new high priest. And they go through the whole history of who is this Mekildezek and where does he fit in with the story of Abraham and why is Jesus our new high priest. And they pick up on this psalm and this becomes a psalm that is very closely cited in the first century. And the book of Hebrews spends I think two or three chapters where you'll see this mentioned over and over. But just as we did last week, we ended with a psalm that Matthew seems to have focused on. We end this week with a psalm. The main point is that Jesus was saying to those people in his question, I am the one. He's identifying like, who do you think it is? You think it's just going to be a regular person? I mean, how is it that David, inspired, thinks that this is going to be somebody who's sitting at the right hand of God, who is going to come in this priestly line and be a priest forever? Who could that be? Could it be just an ordinary person? Have you guys missed the boat entirely? That's where he leaves it with them, and they have no answer. They can't figure it out because they don't know the answer. And, of course, they will probably not accept it, but he will be establishing that answer in just a couple days as he goes to the cross, is resurrected, and the church begins. All right? Next week, we're going to cover the seven woes to the Pharisees. So I think after he's had this exchange with them and told them some parables, he's thinking, forget the parables. Let's just say it to you directly. All right? Let's pray and close up. Lord, you have many things to teach us yet. Every time we come back to your word, there are new things that we have not seen and new perspectives we have not gained. Thank you, Lord, that your word is this deep, that we can continue to mine it for all the things that we keep discovering. And thank you, Lord, that they impact our life, that they are not dead letters from the past, but that this matters to us and who we are. Lord, may we begin a journey that ultimately leads to a place where we can say, yes, I do love you, Lord, with all of my heart and my soul and my strength. May that be our first order of priority that leads us naturally into loving everyone around us. 
to a place where we give ourselves away. Just like you modeled for us, Lord, a love that gives yourself away unto death. Life that is laid down for those that you love. Those are friends and those are neighbors. And Lord, you had such a radical definition of who a neighbor was. May we be the same. May people see who you are because of what you've made us. Pray this in your name. Amen.